Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and happy Easter weekend. We're pretty scant on news this week, other than your weekly reminder of the ever-approaching wave of dread that is our flash fiction contest. That monstrous dark shadow that's been lurking in the depths is making its way toward the surface. It won't be long now before it breaches, and we want you to be ready. For those of you raring to go, details are now up at talestoterrified.com slash flash contest, so head over and take a peek. While we're on the topic of dark tales flooding our way, that nefarious pipeline oozing dread into vats in the Tales to Terrify fiction storehouses, aka our regular submissions period, is, as of this week, now officially closed for the time being. While full submissions are no longer accepted, we're still accepting smaller flash tales. That's anything under 2,000 words. TalesToTerrify.com slash submissions has the details if you've got some bite-sized terrible morsels you'd like to send our way. This week, we're brimming with ghastly gratitude thanks to our newest patron, Crystal Galagos. Thank you, Crystal, from the deepest recesses of our corrupted hearts. We truly appreciate your support. If you'd like to join Crystal in helping support not just this show, but the fantastic writers and voice actors that bring these haunting tales to life, check out patreon.com slash tales to terrify. We promise you'll get some great perks and you won't even have to sell your soul for them. This week we have a pair of tales for you, one that takes us to ancient Rome, and one that delves into a darker side of a familiar holiday. Our first story for the evening comes from Julia August. Julia August likes history and fantasy often together. Her fiction has appeared in The Dark Unlikely Stories, the Journal of Unlikely Academia, Women Destroy Fantasy, and anthologies like Places We Fear to Tread. You can find out more at juliaaugust.com. Listen with me, children of the night. 
to Julia August's City of Wolves and Lightning, first published in Lamplight, June 2016. Afterwards, I heard it said that lightning struck the soldiers disembarking at Dirachium, and wolves came into the city that stayed. This was not true, however. The only tracks I saw doubled back on themselves after pissing on the boundary stones. The other story may have been true. The people of the city that left swear to it, and everyone knows how Strabo died, who was Pompeius Magnus's father. But if the gods didn't strike down anyone on the Durakian docks, it didn't stop the rest from planting their senate and assemblies and magisterial mansions there in the foreign dust. Afterwards, you tally up the missed omens. Before, no one can tell a warning from a promise. I wasn't there anyway. I was back in the city that stayed, along with all the other shadows. I belonged to the city of wolves, not the city of lightning. Caesar was coming. His name drove the other city out. His name and his army. I was on the Capitoline Hill when the other city left. I felt it leave, like I'd lost half of myself. My chest split open. My knees buckled under me, and I opened my eyes to a view from below of the dust settling on the wolf mother's broken paw. Down below, the forum magnum unfurled into dreams and shadows. Temples stood out like teeth in an old man's jaw, solitary patches of colour and light in an untimely dusk. Head roaring, I steadied myself against the wolf mother's shoulder. I felt as if I'd split in two. I don't know how else to describe it. I felt faint. Not light-headed, but light of body. I felt like half a man. I couldn't see my knuckles. Through air as thick as smoke, I traced the outlines of my fingers, my ring, my bony wrist. There was blood on my face. I felt my bruises gingerly. Lucius Metellus, I said to myself, staring out over the fading rooftops, O wisest and bravest of tribunes, you should have left with Magnus. The consuls gave the sword to Magnus, and Magnus gave you an order, you and the other magistrates. He won't forget who stayed behind. And do you think Caesar will be grateful to you for staying? Caesar, who comes home like Marius and Sulla. Then the wolf-mother bared her bronze teeth, the ground leapt like a swallow, and I lurched against the wolf-mother with a startled cry. Swords flashed in the smoke. I heard screams echoing across the hill and saw Treacle standing the pavement just as a severed head hurtled out of the dark. It vanished. The wolf-mother licked her broken paw, the one damaged by lightning when I was a boy, and went back to being a statue. In utter confusion I felt for blood on the unstained stone. There wasn't any. It had been a vision. I couldn't tell whether it was a vision of the future or of the past. I got up slowly. Jupiter, best and greatest, glowed above me, brilliant as a midnight beacon. All the paint picking out the gods lounging across the temple freezes had brightened. You should have gone, Lucius, you idiot, I said again. You should have followed the consuls. You should be with the city that left. The wolf-mother's ear twitched. With a flash of paralyzing fear that lit up every corner, I realized I might have gone after all. Maybe that was why the other city's loss had hurt so much. I might have followed our golden Magnus south towards the ships at Brundisium, 
and left only my shadow to haunt the city that stayed. I might be the shadow. The realisation staggered me. I started down the hill towards the Forum Magnum, slowly at first, then stumbling in my haste, plunging into an infernal gloom. Did I go? I demanded, seizing on the first person I met. She raised a tearful face and pulled away. I caught at a fading elbow. Did I go with Magnus? Tell me! But all the people were shadows, and no one answered except to groan Caesar's name. The walls flashed transparent down the Via Sacra. I reeled through the first solid door I saw and fell at Fulvia's feet. Not that I recognised the lady's slippers or her blue-bordered pallor, but the stridency of her voice was familiar from the forum. Domitius is defeated, she announced. Caesar holds Corfinium. There's no one left to fight for Italy. My ring glimmered gold at me. I was sure it was real, which meant I was real. But when I raised my head, the smoky shades of Fulvia's ancestral in-laws swam about me. Fulvia herself strode up and down her atrium, alive with unsuppressed satisfaction. She hadn't gone with the city that left. She must have stayed for her second husband, Curio, who had declared for Caesar. Writes Curio, said Claudia Matelli, her first husband's seditiosa sister. Fulvia slapped a pair of scribbled wax tablets together. Writes Curio. The sense of being half there, half torn away, caught me again. I struck out for sanity. Ladies, please. They looked at me coldly. It's the Tribune, Fulvia said. Didn't you leave with Magnus, Metellus? Or do you want to join Caesar? Clodia straightened her stola with an uneasy hand. If Caesar will have him. There was grey in her hair and lines like leaf stems trembled at the corners of her fine eyes. If Caesar won't play Marius and take revenge on his enemies. Caesar was clement at Corfinium, Fulvia said dismissively. He lets Domitius go to join Magnus's city, and Caesar respects tribunes. But from what Bibius says, the thunder in my ears drowned out their conversation. I compared my hand with the shaking wall, then with the clear-edged altar, but my eyes blurred, and anyway the atrium seemed too bright, too defiant in its brilliance to be much more solid than the shadowed streets. The women spoke and moved like actors on a stage. If they'd heaved off their elaborately coiled heads and turned out to be actors under wooden masks, I wouldn't have blinked. I needed to know which city I was in. I needed to know whether I was just a shadow. Fulvia and Clodia couldn't tell me, though, and probably wouldn't if they could. In the distance, the wolves were howling. I staggered out. There was a crowd in the Curia Cornelia where the benches had never been fuller and none of the senators noticed me. I pushed between droning superficial speechmakers until I could have shaken them all sick. Hey, I said loudly, did I go or stay? But the consul Marcellus ignored me and went on wistfully about Caesar's Gallic armies. He had gone. He faded in and out as he spoke over his consular colleague Lentulus over his consularis cousin Marcellus, over my fellow tribunes Antonius and Cassius, who had fled to Caesar. All the shades were speaking at cross-purposes. I didn't recognise half of them. The now-here-now-gone-again walls were mostly a charred reversion to the old Curia Hostilia, which had stood upon the spot until three years ago where the bereaved mob had burnt it to the ground. Fulvia's murdered first husband lay smoking across a bench. No one paid him any attention. I heard Fulvia's salt-cracked voice somewhere in the layers of furious sound. The roar of those riots flooded back to me, accompanied by a fresh, drumming fear. In a sudden rage, I kicked the bench, sending the seditious body sprawling like a rag doll. His head bounced over the floor. Did I go? Did I? Clodius's vacant eyes stared up through a mask of dried blood. I backed away, breathing unevenly, until a bench hit the back of my legs. I felt like a fool. 
Metellus, said someone nearby, are you still here? I swung round eagerly. Servius Sulpicius Rufus stood there, turning a letter in his liver-spotted hands. He looked old and tired and bewildered, as if it surprised him that the disaster he'd been predicting since his consulship had finally struck. I seized on him. Am I? Sulpicius's eyes were wandering already. What is there left, he said, as if to himself. The magistrates have gone. The laws have gone. There's no one to hold the elections or manage the law courts. What's left? I heard the wolves again and shuddered. You? I'm a jurist. How can I be a jurist without any laws? He didn't wait for an answer. Caesar missed Magnus at Brundisium. Now he needs money. He spent everything he had in Gaul. All that's left here is the treasury. The consuls abandoned it when they fled. Caesar always had lived off his creditors. Didn't they take the keys with them? Sulpicius turned away with a caricature of a laugh. Caesar's coming, he said over his shoulder. He'll slaughter the rich like Sulla, but I won't fight my fellow citizens. Not even Caesar. He can do what he wants with me. He's coming. It was too late to go after the city that had left. But I went down to the old city boundary anyway to see if Caesar could be seen yet on the Via Appia. I might have gone further, but at the boundary the shadow land had hung a veil around the city, and I slammed up against it. So I was the shadow after all. I flushed cold, then hot, then just felt hollow. My real self must have followed Magnus. Only I, the shadow, torn free from the real Lucius Cecilius Metellus, had stayed behind. I was only half a man. The outer half, I think. A double trail of paw prints led up to the dripping boundary stone and veered off into the suburbs alongside the road. Far off, the sky crackled black and thunderstruck. I was feeling for seams in the veil when I saw on the other side a shadow that was not a shadow, in fact, but only looked like one, standing as he did outside the city. He was wringing his hands. Sulpicius, is that you? I recognised the orator's rich voice. No, Metellus. Oh, the tribune. Micah Cicero's loss of interest was palpable. At any other time, he would have hidden it better. Will you go over to Caesar? Will you? I, he said, am I a tribune? But the momentary deepening of his voice lightened almost at once, fraying into uncertainty. Should I stay or go? Can we believe Caesar's promises? He talks about peace and clemency, but he comes as a conqueror. But Magnus abandoned us. Magnus plans to starve Caesar out of Italy. What should I do? I couldn't answer him. I had asked myself the same question, and only echoes answered me. I was a shadow, not a soul. I can't abandon Magnus, Cicero went on. For all he got wrong, for all he never listened to me, for all he made Caesar what he is, for all he abandoned us. But how can I abandon him? He saved me from exile. He ruined everything. But I can't abandon him now. Why are you still here, then? He didn't seem to hear me. He says Rome isn't about house walls, he said, like someone arguing with himself. He says the people are the city. But what about altars and hearths? He started off down the Via Appia, trailing the threads of his argument after him. People can leave, but temples can't. The gods can't, unless they abandon us because we abandoned them. Romans! fighting Romans. He never meant to defend Rome. He always meant to reconquer Italy. He wants to recover the city with the sword. What should I do? Do I go or stay? I watched him go. I had no choice, having already left. There was nothing I could do but wait. The seams of the city that stayed split open when Caesar came. I felt it like lightning in the air, or as if the city that had left had come crashing back. 
The gloom peeled away and the light flooded in and the moaning shades of the forum scattered like startled moths. I elbowed forwards as other people streamed away. Caesar stood outside the old city boundary. I couldn't make out his face at first, just the thinning strands of his overcombed hair. Then he turned his vulpine head and I realised he was looking from side to side, as if what was left of the city baffled him. He stepped across the boundary. It should have stripped off his golden sheen of command, but instead the boundary parted like split Cohen silk. What, he said peering around, has happened? The houses paled and quavered. Caesar advanced another step, the eagles soaring behind him, his armour glittering in the gloom. I hadn't known what I was going to do until then. I stepped out in front of him. Magnus left. He took the city with him. I wasn't sure Caesar would see me, but he looked down his long nose and I knew then that I could speak and be heard. Caesar had come. I felt relief first, then a tremendous freedom. Shadow or not, I could act. I could change what happened here. Besides, my real self was in Magnus's city, and I was a tribune, or the sacrosanct shadow of one, and Caesar respected tribunes. He'd gone to war for Antonius and Cassius. This is the only city there is, Caesar said flatly, and the first quiver of doubt plucked at me. Step aside, I have business at the treasury. Uh, no, you can't enter. The keys went with Magnus. I don't need keys, Caesar said. I have an axe. Get out of my way, Tribune. I would have seized him, but his eyes glanced off me, and then there was nothing between my hands but air and the thunder of Caesar's soldiers marching into the city under their eagles. I was fading again. For the first time, I wondered what the city that left looked like, and whether it was as much of a shadow as the city that stayed. It didn't matter either way. Magnus would unite the cities, or Caesar would, or no one would. Meanwhile, I belonged to the city of wolves. That was Julia August's City of Wolves and Lightning, as read by Graham Dunlop. Graham Dunlop is a software solution architect and voice actor living in Melbourne, Australia. He is the co-editor of the fantasy podcast Podcastle and used to host the YA podcast Cast of Wonders. He occasionally tweets as at Kibitzer on Twitter. Thank you, Graham. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. 
juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Our second tale tonight comes from Ryan Nagel. Ryan Nagel is a 20-year veteran of the service industry, currently changing careers to user experience design. A native of Baltimore, Maryland, he currently resides in Philadelphia with his partner, who decidedly does not like scary movies. He has voraciously consumed horror and fantasy content since early childhood and decided it was about time he put forth some stories of his own for others to enjoy. To contact Ryan, visit his website at rnd-ux.com. Children of the Night, join me for Ryan Nagel's The Feast Day of St. Nicholas, a Tales to Terrify original. hurt. Quinn winced at his son's shrill complaint. I know, Toby. You're doing great. I'm sorry this is taking so long. Why can't we go back to Aunt Marguerite's house? Toby pleaded. Sighing, Quint stopped walking and squeezed the bridge of his nose with his thumb and forefinger, rubbing in a fruitless attempt to alleviate his growing headache. Toby, I am trying. I need you to be patient. These streets all look the same, but we'll find Marguerite's house eventually, buddy. I promise. It had been his wife Priscilla's idea to come here. The pandemic shutdowns had made them all eager to travel after being cooped up for so long and visiting her Aunt Marguerite in the quaint French town of St. Nicholas de Port had seemed like an absolutely magical way to treat themselves. And truly, Quinn had felt as though he were in a fairy tale two nights prior. The town was known for its torchlight procession of over 1,000 candles to celebrate the feast day of St. Nicholas, culminating at the basilica of his namesake. They had bundled up and thrilled at the orange glow of so many tiny flames snaking their way through the quaint old commune. Now, though, that magic had faded. Earlier in the day, Priscilla and Aunt Marguerite had been leisurely making dinner and catching up in that way family members do. Remember cousin so-and-so? And, oh, well, that reminds me of the time. Quinn felt he had little to contribute and Toby was growing bored with no children his age to play with, so they decided to go out for a stroll around the town. That meandering walk had turned into at least an hour-long trek at this point. Quinn had no way of knowing for sure, as he had accidentally left his phone at the house. It was cold, they were lost, and he was annoyed at the prospect of wandering down claustrophobically narrow streets until he hopefully recognized Marguerite's home. Would he even be able to tell which house was hers? The homes all looked the same in this part of the commune, weathered by time the same yellowish beige of an elderly smoker's teeth. Sporadically shuttered windows 
made him feel even more isolated. As they came to the next intersection that looked exactly like the last several intersections, a break in the short skyline of homes afforded them a line of sight to the basilica towering over the rest of the architectural landscape. It dominated the view, and Quinn felt his stiff neck crack as he craned to look upward at such a sharp angle. An idea struck him then. After the torchlight procession the other night, they had walked back to Marguerite's. It only took about five minutes then, and that had been through fairly dense crowds of people. Quinn figured if they started at the Basilica and tried different routes, they would eventually find Marguerite's house. If they hadn't found it after five minutes, he knew they had gone too far and would head back to the Basilica to try a different path. He wasn't thrilled about the lack of efficiency in the plan, but he had yet to think of a better idea. Okay, Toby, let's try this way. Quinn tried to sound optimistic. Toby stomped and groaned loudly, following his father with clear frustration. As they neared the Gothic wonder, Quinn allowed himself a moment to admire the basilica feeling a sense of awe again at the comparatively massive structure surrounded by such modest dwellings. As they passed by the side doors of the church, motion caught his eye down an intersecting street. It was too narrow a path for cars, and as such was not lit as well as the vehicular roadways. The silhouette of a backlit person was making its way in their direction. Hello? I mean, bonjour? Quinn called to the stranger, cursing himself for not brushing up on conversational French for the trip. He was hoping for the off chance that this person was a local and knew where Marguerite lived. At the very least, he would attempt to pantomime and convince them to let him use their cell phone to call his wife for directions. The person did not reply. Quinn was not immediately concerned, as they weren't a large figure. He was 5'11 and exercised somewhat regularly, and the figure approaching them was not even up to his shoulders. Dad, what's wrong with them? Toby asked. What do you mean? Quinn replied. He still couldn't make out details, as they were backlit. They're walking funny. Are they hurt? said Toby. Quinn had not noticed before, but the person's gait was off. They were dragging one leg, letting it scrape limply behind them before flopping the other in an exaggerated stomp. Clump! Screech! Clump! Screech! He placed his hands on Toby's shoulders, steering the boy in the direction they had been heading prior to sighting the stranger. They had never replied, and Quinn had no desire to get hassled by a drunk. He kept an eye over his shoulder, but he was confident that even a modest walking pace would prevent the limping figure from catching up to them. As the two rounded the corner to the front of the basilica, Quinn attempted to reorient himself. He had enjoyed a few mugs of mulled wine during the procession two nights previously, so his memory of which direction they had walked was a bit fuzzy. Hands on his hips, he huffed and looked from one street to the next, hoping for a spark of recognition. Instead, he saw shapes from much more recently in his memory. On two of the potential routes, figures shuffled towards them in a similar hobbled gait to the shadowy outline they had just avoided. Quinn's left eyelid twitched, his mouth going dry. Uh, hello? He called loudly, ashamed at how much his voice quavered. Clump. Screech. Clump. Screech! The sounds were echoing 
but also now coming from multiple directions. Looking back in the direction from which they came, he saw the first figure finally rounding the corner. Still a good thirty feet away, but easily the closest of the three unresponsive strangers. Quinn positioned himself between the stranger and Toby. Can you please help us? We're lost and... and... His words failed as he choked back a gag. The thing had come into the light. Leathery and scabbed. Gruesome, yet there was no gore to speak of. It took Quinn's brain a few moments to comprehend what he was seeing. Humanoid in shape, the withered flesh was patchwork and chaotic. True, it had legs, arms, and a head, but it was as though they had been assembled incorrectly. The mouth was a limp, open hole with a slack, boneless lower jaw, teeth peeking out sporadically. Eyeless, puckered cavities gaped unseeing, one completely crusted over. One of the feet was backwards, the other leg's knee bending the wrong way. A tug on his jacket snapped Quinn out of his freeze-up. Dad! Toby wailed, eyes wide and tearlessly terrified, pointing out to his father the other two shambling horrors approaching from behind. Clump! Screech! Clump! Screech! Primitive brain taking over, Quinn's head whipped back and forth frantically while his legs remained motionless weights. He felt no urge for fight nor flight. Rather, the paralytic terror of having absolutely no idea what to do in this situation. Over the shuffling sounds of the abominations, there was a sharp clack and the squeal of heavy hinges. Fearing another monstrosity, he sought the source of the noise. In here, quickly, a voice called to them in accented English. Quinn saw an old man in a cassock, beckoning to them from a now-open door to the basilica. Scooping up Toby, Quinn fled from the three ghastly things and into the building. Hurry now, hurry. They're right behind you. The man warned through his white, wispy beard, hustling them into the church. Once inside, the stranger locked the door and slid a solid wooden bar into place. Quinn was gasping for breath from panic more than exertion, setting Toby down and inspecting the door to make sure it was secure. They will not be able to gain entry, I assure you, said the old man. They will try, but they will fail. His panic subsiding just enough to form words, Quinn questioned, How can you be so sure? What the fuck are those things? Opening his mouth to speak, the old man's reply was cut short by a quiet but continuous wail. The previously stunned Toby was starting to cry, not in sobs, but one long, low moan. Quinn bent down to soothe his son, hugging him and making shushing noises. I will tell you all about those wretches, the old man croaked just above a whisper. But perhaps we should calm the boy first. Come this way. The old man led Quinn and Toby through the basilica, votive candles casting orange light. The shadows danced in the flickering partial illumination. Quinn's eyes darted about at each perceived movement, expecting to see more monstrosities, but finding only shadows. The old man paused as they passed an elaborate statue of a gilded hand with two fingers pointed upwards. He inclined his head reverently at the reliquary before motioning Quinn and Toby on again. I am Father Shakyutir, 
the old man said as they exited the nave through a side door, leading to less celebratory and more functional areas of the basilica. You have nothing to fear from those creatures while they remain outside, but you cannot leave this place tonight. My name is Quinn, and this is Toby, he said as they proceeded down unoccupied hallways. After a few turns, the priest flipped a wall switch. Mundane fluorescent lights rattled to life in a dated kitchen, the cold blue light seeming out of place in the holy building. The old man went about putting a kettle on the stove and pulling three mugs from the cabinets. Grinning warmly, he asked, Toby, how would you like a mug of hot cocoa? You must be cold. Still sniffling, Toby wiped tears and mucus from his face against the back of his coat sleeve, nodding affirmatively to the priest. Quinn led Toby to the wooden dining table and chairs and began shedding their heavy winter coats. As for the explanation you asked for, said the priest as he gathered items from the cupboard, what do you know of the miracles of St. Nicholas? Quinn pondered for a moment, replying, Miracles? I mean, he leaves presents for children, but I feel like that's more of a Santa Claus thing. Isn't St. Nicholas the patron saint of children or something? The priest chuckled. No, though you would be forgiven for thinking so. He is commonly thought of as such because of a miracle he performed in this very village. There are variations to the tale, but I will tell you a brief version. Three boys from the nearby farmlands were visiting the city. A man, sometimes said to be an innkeeper, or a butcher, or even an ogre, took the boys in for the night. He drugged them, dismembered them, and put them in a pickle barrel, yelled Toby. Quinn stared questioningly at his son. Toby shrugged, explaining, Aunt Marguerite read me this story the other night. The priest chuckled. You're close, young man. A spoon tinkled musically as he stirred the mugs of steaming cocoa. It was a salting barrel, meant to preserve meats, very similar to pickling in some ways. What happened next in the tale as you heard it, Toby? Well, he said, scrunching his eyebrows together in recollection. Seven years later, uh, St. Nicholas came to the same city and knocked on the bad man's door. The bad man tried to feed St. Nicholas his best ham, then his best veal, but St. Nicholas knew what the bad man had done, so he freed the boys so they could go home to their families. Sitting at the table, the priest presented Quinn and Toby with a steaming mug of cocoa each. Careful now, it's hot, he cautioned. The marshmallows were already softening and creating a foamy, thick layer on the top. The old man clinked his mug against Quinn's, prompting Quinn to take a sip. The priest lowered his mug from his lips, exaggeratedly smacking his mouth and sighing. Ah, in satisfaction. The miracle, he continued slowly, staring intently into Quinn's eyes. Is that St. Nicholas resurrected those three boys? The stories like to say they sprung forth from the barrel as happily as birds in springtime. But after seven long years in that salt, can you imagine what they must have looked like? Quinn, mid-sip, lowered his mug and stared slack-jawed as he realized what the priest was implying. Those were the boys from the story? Toby exclaimed, marshmallow foam clinging to his nose from drinking deeply. With a patient grin, the priest nodded just once to Quinn and Toby, confirming the identities of the monstrosities outside. Had Quinn not seen the shambling miseries himself, 
you wouldn't believe any of what he was hearing. But he had seen them. Speaking slowly, as though barely able to convince himself to even say the words, Quinn asked, Say I believe you. Why on earth would they be chasing us? Oh, I don't believe they were, said the priest. Take some small assurance from that. No, they come here every year on the feast day of St. Nicholas. You and young Toby here just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Quinn furrowed his brow. But the feast day was on Saturday night. We were at the procession. Why are they still here? This is insane to begin with, but why would they show up two days late? Well, yes and no, the priest replied. There was a celebration two nights ago. The locals like to observe it on the weekend. But the actual feast day is today. Those things will be gone come morning, to where I cannot say. With a wink he added, My curiosity regarding the specifics of their comings and goings has never outweighed my cowardice, I'm ashamed to admit. Toby had his mug upended over his mouth, chasing the last drops. He wiped his mouth on the back of his sleeve after setting down the now empty mug. Toby yawned in exaggerated fashion and leaned forward in his seat, elbows finding their way onto the table to prop up his chin with his hands. Quinn took some solace in seeing his son visibly calmer. He took another swig of his own cooling cocoa, noting it was a touch bitter, maybe made with a darker chocolate than he was used to. But why here? Why this day every year? Quinn questioned. Shrugging, the priest looked about the kitchen as though searching for an answer. Perhaps they look for St. Nicholas himself. We passed a relic of the saint upstairs, a finger bone to be precise. The boys are maybe drawn to it? I guess, Quinn said, not fully convinced. Toby yawned again, longer than previously. He laid his head down on the table, eyes fluttering asynchronously, fighting off his tiredness unsuccessfully. Quinn felt a yawn unfurl from his own maw, catching him a bit by surprise. Sorry. Oh, must be the adrenaline wearing off, he apologized. Sitting up a bit straighter and shaking himself alert, a thought occurred to him. The relic, is it the only one? If we destroy it with those boys, those things, stop coming here? The priest scratched his chin in thought, eyes never breaking contact with Quinn. I do not think so. There are many relics of St. Nicholas at many other places of worship. Rubbing his suddenly drooping eyelids with his knuckles, Quinn yawned again. He tried to speak through it this time, his foggy brain insisting it was vitally important he finish the current line of thought. But if there... if there are relics in other churches, what brings them... here... As he spoke, his head did not clunk down dramatically. Rather, it bobbed down slowly, with a longer pause between every few words, until his cheek finally touched the table. His skin felt warm wetness on the table's surface, and the surprising sensation was enough for his eyes to snap open once more to search out the source. Quinn saw his Toby's cherubic face, mouth open and drooling onto the table as he slept. Then his eyes bedraggedly focused on the old man, now standing behind Toby and still staring at Quinn. In a voice of rustling dead leaves, 
the priest mused. Well then, I would imagine the boys are here for another reason. Grinning mirthlessly, his white beard a curtain pulling back to reveal crooked, sepia-toned teeth, he continued, Perhaps they wish to prevent the faithful from celebrating the feast day. As darkness pulled Quinn down into unconsciousness, he thought how odd it was that the priest was tying on a leather apron over his cassock. Say Levere, a voice boomed. Quinn jolted awake to the shout as he felt something tapping the bottom of his boot, jarring him back to consciousness. C'est Levere, vous ne pouvez pas dormir ici. The police officer continued as he knocked on Quinn's boot with his baton, clearly not happy. Pushing himself up from the ground, Quinn's head swiveled about in confusion. Wincing, he blinked at the dazzling daylight and realized he was in front of the basilica. Pedestrians gave him a wide berth, some pausing with looks of concern or annoyance. What's going on? Where's Toby? Quinn sputtered as he tottered to his feet, head throbbing and nausea threatening to overtake him. Ah, American, too much celebrating last night, maybe, the officer said in heavily accented English. My son, where's my son? Quinn was yelling now, frantic and weaving towards the doors of the church. The police officer followed closely, alarmed by Quinn's emotional state, but more focused on what he said. Your son, you say? Sir, are you missing a child? Yes, Quinn barked. My son Toby and I, we, we were in this church last night and we, the priest, the priest in the basilica. Okay, okay, please be calm, we will find your boy replied the officer as he positioned himself in front of Quinn and led the way through the door into the basilica. A young priest with an armful of hymnals called a greeting to the two men as they entered. Setting the books down on the nearest pew, he approached with a look of curious concern. The officer and priest began to converse in French, and Quinn was unable to parse any of the words. Okay said the officer, turning to Quinn. You say you were here last night with your son and something about a priest. What happened? We were lost, and there were these three... Quinn paused, realizing how his story would sound if he started raving about ghouls. Three boys. They seemed dangerous, so... A priest led us into the church to stay the night. Then he made us a drink, and then I woke up outside. The officer nodded, listening attentively. He did not betray one way or the other if he believed Quinn, but he seemed to be taking the matter seriously. He turned and translated for the priest, whose facial expression began to change from concerned to querulous. He replied to the officer, gesturing about himself toward the doors of the church and shrugging. The officer summarized for Quinn. The father here says he is sorry to hear he had trouble with the boys of our town. He also says there should have been nobody here in the church last night. He locked the doors himself when he left yesterday. What was the name of this man who let you inside to stay the night? Clenching his eyes shut, Quinn clawed for the memory through his fogged brain. Eyelids snapping open, he all but shouted, Charcuterre! He said his name was Charcuterre. We have to find him. He must have my son. At this, the police officer looked annoyed. Rolling his eyes, he spoke in French to the young priest who smirked and tutted. Replying to the officer, 
he began shaking his head in disapproval as he returned to gather up his stack of hymnals. Okay, you have had your fun. Next time you get drunk, please do not sleep on the street where I am on duty. The officer turned curtly to exit the church. Quinn was stunned silent for a moment before chasing after the police officer. Wait, wait! What's going on? Do you know Father Charcuter? I need to find my son. Not breaking stride, the officer spoke in an irritated tone. Yes, yes, your son. You had me fooled. You had your fun. Yes, I believed you at first. But come now. Three boys, St. Nicholas, and the butcher? I do not appreciate these jokes from tourists, especially not those who pass out on our streets. He nearly spat these last words out, pausing with his hand on the door just long enough to disparagingly look Quinn up and down. Astonished, Quinn held his hands up defensively and squealed, I don't understand. What butcher? He was a priest. Pushing open the door and exiting the basilica, the officer said over his shoulder, As if you did not already know, charcuterie means butcher, a butcher of pork, of salted ham. That was Ryan Nagel's The Feast Day of St. Nicholas, as read by yours truly. I'd share my personal website with you again, but it's outdated enough at this point that I'd just be setting myself up for embarrassment. But feel free to check out the About section on TalesToTerrify.com if you'd like to know a little more about me. Well... Children of the night. The hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Kathy Robinson and Amanda Gottfried, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free and extended episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we summon forth the living dead with more Tales to Terrify. Tales to Terrify
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.